Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 1st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's headlines. Former U.S. President Donald Trump is indicted by a New York grand jury. The Turkish parliament ratifies Finland's NATO membership. Bucha marks one year since the withdrawal of Russian forces. An India temple well collapse kills at least 30. Wimbledon reverses its ban on Russian and Belarusian players. The Egyptian army is accused of turning Sinai schools into military bases. The UK joins the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact. Japan announces plans to restrict semiconductor equipment exports. The U.S. House passes a GOP energy agenda. And the U.S. Census Bureau may include a slave descendant question in its survey. Our top story, ex-U.S. President Donald Trump is indicted by a New York grand jury. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS News, The Washington Post, CNN, Reuters, and The New York Times. On Thursday, a New York grand jury indicted former President Donald Trump over hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels during his 2016 campaign, making him the first former U.S. president to face criminal charges. According to documents filed in Los Angeles federal court, Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer, signed a non-disclosure agreement with Daniels to hide her consensual sexual encounter with Trump in 2006 in exchange for a $130,000 payment. The encounter took place in the year after Trump married his current wife, Melania. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has reportedly contacted Trump's lawyers to coordinate his surrender for arraignment on a Supreme Court indictment which remains under seal. However, Trump is expected to turn himself in prior to his arraignment, appear in court on Tuesday, and be processed, including supplying fingerprints and mugshots. The indictment comes as Trump faces legal hurdles in multiple potential criminal cases, including an investigation into alleged illegal meddling by the former president and his allies in the 2020 election in Georgia, which he lost to Joe Biden. Thank you, Scott. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. You just heard Scott lay out the facts for that story. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-Trump narrative provided by Breitbart. Donald Trump is a victim of a Democratic witch hunt to suppress his influence and reclaim the presidency. Democrats have successfully weaponized the criminal justice system, which is now focused on political vengeance and punishing a political opponent instead of keeping Americans safe. This is not an indictment of a crime. It's an indictment of a failed nation. The Democratic narrative comes from The New York Times. While it is not illegal to silence someone so as to protect your reputation and marriage, covering up the action by falsifying business records is a criminal offense. The indictment is a testament to the fact that no one is above the law, no matter how powerful they are. Alleged breaches of campaign finance law carried out by the Trump campaign also deserve to be taken seriously. And Newsweek is providing us with a narrative C. This indictment has set the stage for a 2024 presidential contest unlike any other. Being charged with or found guilty of a crime does not disqualify the 45th president of the United States from running for office again. An indictment may even make Trump more popular, since he is an expert in portraying himself as an anti-establishment figure against his opponent's weight. 
This development alone will not hand Trump victory in 2024, but it does lay the ground for an unpredictable presidential contest. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 38% chance that Trump will win if the 2024 presidential election is Trump versus Biden. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. The Turkish parliament ratifies Finland's NATO membership. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Wall Street Journal, and Euronews. On Thursday, Turkey's parliament approved a bill that would allow Finland to join NATO, clearing the way for the Nordic country to become part of the Western military alliance as the war in Ukraine grinds on. All 276 members of Turkey's parliament that were present voted in favor of the country's accession to NATO. Days after Hungary's parliament also endorsed Helsinki's bid, the Turkish parliament was the last among the 30 members of the alliance to ratify Finland's membership. Under NATO rules, any new member must secure the support of all nations within the alliance. The addition of Finland would lengthen the alliance's border with Russia by more than 800 miles. Meanwhile, Sweden's application to join the alliance has been left hanging, despite endorsing NATO's expansion. Turkey and Hungary have declined to give it their blessing. Ankara alleges that Sweden is too lenient towards militant Kurdish groups and people associated with the 2016 coup attempt in Turkey, while Budapest opposes comments made by Swedish politicians about its democracy. Once Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan formally approves the ratification, Ankara and Budapest will send their approving documents to the U.S., NATO's depository, after which Finland will be formally invited to join the alliance. Narrative A comes from the Wall Street Journal. The Turkish parliament's positive vote to ratify Finland's membership will help strengthen the alliance and make it safer. While the accession of Sweden would also be in a welcomed move, NATO isn't there yet. Erdogan's hard line against Sweden has broad support within Turkey, but perhaps things will change after its upcoming election. And a narrative B by DW.com. By refusing to accept Sweden into NATO, Erdogan looks more and more like an opportunist than the leader of one of NATO's most important members, pushing his own domestic agenda rather than that of the alliance. By simply asking too much of Sweden, he endangers the whole bloc. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 70% chance that Sweden will join NATO before the year 2024. And turning our attention to the Ukraine, the Kyiv suburb of Bucha marks one year since liberation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine Forum, Reuters, Associated Press, The Guardian, and Ukranska Pravda. The Kyiv suburb of Bucha, where Ukraine alleges Russian forces committed scores of atrocities in their short-lived occupation of the town in the first weeks of the war, marked the one-year anniversary of its liberation on Friday. Marking the day, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky alleged that Russian forces killed upwards of 1,400 civilians and committed more than 9,000 war crimes in 33 days of Bucha's occupation. He said, 365 days since it is a free Ukrainian city once again, a symbol of the atrocities of the occupying country's army. We will never forgive. We will punish every perpetrator. Shortly after their withdrawal in the circulation of the first images from Bucha, 
Russian officials allege that accusations of war crimes committed in the town were forged and staged in order to denigrate the Russian army. They questioned why images initially appeared on April 3, 2022, when their forces had withdrawn on March 30th, and the town was declared free by its mayor the following day, adding that the degradation of the bodies was inconsistent with alleged timelines of when they were killed. Elsewhere, the U.S. on Thursday said it has new evidence that Russia is again looking to North Korea to obtain weapons and ammunition amid alleged shortages, this time in exchange for food. Any such deal would be a violation of U.N. resolutions that ban North Korea from importing or exporting weaponry. It comes as Russia is set to take up the monthly presidency of the U.N. Security Council in April, in line with the 15-member bodies rotation. Ukrainian officials chided the occurrence as an absurdity and a cruel April Fool's joke amid Russia's invasion. On the ground, Ukrainian officials said one civilian was killed and six others were injured in attacks on Donetsk over the past day. Meanwhile, one civilian was killed and two more were injured in continued attacks on Kherson. Further attacks were recorded in the regions of Kharkiv and Zaporizhia without additional reports of casualties. Thank you, Scott. There's an anti-Russia narrative provided by AP News. Buka has become indelibly linked with Russian war crimes and atrocities committed throughout the course of this war. Russian forces killed hundreds of civilians in the city, some of whom were executed at point-blank range while scores more were tortured and underwent other forms of ill-treatment. And we have a pro-Russian narrative from TASS. The events of Bucha were staged to vilify Russia's armed forces. Worse still, they took place when Ukraine had agreed to basic principles of a peace agreement before they suddenly changed course. Kyiv's backers in the West wanted the war with Russia to continue for the sake of their own foreign policy goals. A temple well collapse in India kills at least 36. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NDTV.com, Al Jazeera, CNN, The Times of India, India Today, and BBC News. On Thursday, a floor covering a 40-feet-deep step well at a temple in central India collapsed, killing at least 36 people and injuring over a dozen more, local officials said, as rescue teams continued to search for the missing on Friday. A large crowd of devotees gathered at Indore's Belashawar Mahadev Temple to celebrate the Hindu festival of Ram Navami, when the concrete slab they were standing on collapsed under their weight in the state of Madhya Pradesh. Videos and photos of the rescue operation show a large, gaping hole in the ground under the temple, with devotees being brought out to the surface using ropes and ladders after pumping out the water. The city's municipal authorities reportedly ordered the Temple Trust to remove the covering in January, terming it unauthorized and unsafe. However, they were told the order hurt Hindu values and was an attempt to fan sentiments of Hindu believers. On Friday, Indoor police said the president and secretary of the Temple Trust are booked on culpable homicide charges under Section 304 of the Indian Penal Code in connection with the floor's collapse. State Chief Minister Shivra Singh Kuhan announced a compensation of 500,000 rupees, about $6,000, to the families of the deceased and 50,000 rupees to the injured, while Prime Minister Modi announced an ex gratia of 200,000 rupees to the victims. An official investigation has also been launched. Thanks for those facts, Adam. We have a narrative A from NDTV. Questions must be asked of both the Temple Trust and the Indoor Civic Body. The tragedy could have been averted had the authorities properly acted on complaints filed by residents 
who alleged that the temple was built on a stepwell in an encroached park last year. Despite likely knowing the structure wasn't secure, officials failed to follow through on any action and no amount of compensation will bring justice to the victims. And The Week magazine has a narrative B. Religion shouldn't be used to grab public land for the benefit of a few greedy individuals. The municipal and government bodies, having ordered the structure's removal, must be empowered to prevent unauthorized constructions from being carried out under the garb of religious structures, as political interests and religious sentiments often render authorities helpless. And in the world of sports, Wimbledon reverses its ban on Russian and Belarusian players. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, The Telegraph, The Times, Sky News, and Reuters. The All England Club has lifted a ban imposed last year on Russian and Belarusian players at Wimbledon. It was announced Friday. Their participation will be subject to a number of conditions, including that they feature as neutral athletes. Although the players will now be allowed to compete in July's Grand Slam, they must refrain from expressing support for the invasion of Ukraine and will be restricted from receiving funding from their home governments. Reaction to the All England Club's decision last year to sanction the athletes was excessively hostile. Wimbledon was stripped of its ranking points for the first time since the latter was introduced, while hefty fines were issued to the Lawn Tennis Association, who followed the All England Club's example. A statement released by the Lawn Tennis Association explained that the decision had also resulted in the real prospect of the termination of our membership from the men's ATP tennis tour and women's WTA tour if the ban had continued into 2023. Although the Lawn Tennis Association stated it had opposed the sanctions against it, the effect on British tennis of the Lawn Tennis Association being expelled from the tours would be very damaging and far-reaching for the game in our country. Ukraine's foreign minister has responded to the news, saying Wimbledon's decision was immoral, considering that Russia hasn't ceased its aggression or atrocities. Foreign Minister Dmitro Kubela also urged the UK not to issue the athletes with visas to enter the country. According to All England Club chair Ian Hewitt, the organization will not hesitate to respond if circumstances surrounding the conflict change between now and the start of the tournament on July 3rd. Thank you, Scott. USA Today has a narrative A on this story. The AELTC still totally condemns the illegal invasion of Ukraine and stands in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. However, a careful consideration of all factors has concluded that a reversal of this ban is the most appropriate course of action at this time. Russian and Belarusian athletes, some of whom do not even support the invasion, should not be the ones punished for the Kremlin's decisions. All right, and Narrative B comes from the BBC. It is crucial that Russian and Belarusian athletes continue to be banned from Wimbledon for as long as innocent Ukrainians are being killed. The situation in Ukraine is the same as it was when this ban was imposed. As nothing has changed on the ground, nothing should be changing with the All England Tennis Club. It is crucial that Wimbledon uses its far-reaching brand and platform to show solidarity with Kyiv. In a special report, the Egyptian army has turned Sinai schools into military bases. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Sinai, Al Jazeera, and DW. A report by the UK-based Sinai Foundation for Human Rights, or the SFHR, shared with the Guardian claims that the Egyptian army, in its 10-year fight against militants in the Sinai, have taken over 37 schools and transformed them into military bases, while dozens more have been destroyed. Using satellite images, video, 
photos and testimony from the witnesses who live in the sparsely populated area, the SFHR claims that the Army carried out the unnecessary targeting of certain schools, causing community-wide shock, with 59 schools being destroyed in clashes with the militants. The SFHR is a human rights NGO made up of local activists, researchers, and journalists that seeks to document alleged human rights violations in the Sinai. The group claims the ongoing armed conflict has led to random, life-threatening bombings, forced displacement, and other severely dangerous violations. Following the country's 2011 Arab Spring uprising, Egypt held its first democratic elections, which led to the Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power. However, in 2013, the Egyptian military disposed Morsi and incumbent president. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi came to power in what many foreign observers called a coup. Since 2013, militant attacks in Egypt have risen sharply, mainly in the Sinai Peninsula. Since then, hundreds of Egyptian security personnel have reportedly perished in attacks claimed by an affiliate of the Islamic State. The Egyptian government has yet to comment on SFHR's report, but has previously claimed to having financed the construction of new schools in North Sinai over the last few years. All right, thanks for those facts, Adam. We have an establishment critical narrative from Middle East Monitor. As Sisi continues to violate human rights throughout Egypt, including his brutal campaign against militants in the Sinai, it's important to remember how he came to power. Ultimately, Sisi is a U.S. and Israeli stooge whose primary job is to repress democracy in Egypt and maintain Western geopolitical interests in the region. The only way to save Egypt and stop the horrors is to end support for Sisi and the Egyptian military. And that's followed up with a pro-establishment narrative brought to us by Foreign Affairs. Though it would be great if the U.S. got to pick global leaders, something it is often accused of, the reality is that the U.S. has to work with what it's got. In Egypt, though, Sisi is likely a tyrant. He has kept the country stable, especially in the face of the post-2011 chaos brought on by the Muslim Brotherhood. To preserve regional stability, the U.S. will have to grit its teeth and deal with an authoritarian in the Egyptian presidency. The United Kingdom joins the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The Guardian, Politico, and Al Jazeera. On Friday, the UK announced that it has agreed to join an 11-country Trans-Pacific Trade Deal, named the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP, a step Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's office called the biggest trade deal since Brexit. The CPTPP was established in 2018 to ease restrictions on trade between members as well as tariffs on goods. The trade area covers a market of approximately 500 million people and, according to government estimates, it will add 0.08% to the size of the UK's economy. The agreement, a culmination of 21 months of talks, will also reportedly ease tariffs on food, cars, and liquor, and will give the UK a say on the accession of other applicants. Current existing members include Australia, Brunei, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Vietnam, and Canada. Other nations that have currently applied to join are Ecuador, Costa Rica, Uruguay, Taiwan, and China. Exports to member countries of the CPTPP from the UK were worth approximately $75 billion over the year ending in September 2022. The UK has attempted to build ties with geographically distant but fast-growing states since it officially left the EU in 2020. 
Okay, Scott, the spectator is providing us with a right narrative. Joining the CPTPP couldn't have been done while a part of the EU, and it's the first substantive evidence of progress since Brexit. The knock-on effect of the deal will aid in the UK's longer-term economic plans and is strategically important to reduce China's influence in the region. Britain's businesses will now be able to seize the benefits of trade from the other side of the world while continuing to push against authoritarian regimes, as well as focusing on a trade deal with the U.S. And we have a left narrative from The Guardian. While hardcore Brexiters would like to pretend that the deal is a significant payoff for the decision to leave the EU, the agreement holds no real economic benefit. A trade deal so contentious that it united Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders in U.S. opposition to its entrance. It only offers a 0.08% GDP increase, which is meaningless to the U.K.'s future. No matter how this is portrayed, it isn't the reality of taking back control that Brexit promised. Japan plans to restrict semiconductor equipment exports. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CNN, The Japan Times, Financial Times, Al Jazeera, and Wall Street Journal. On Friday, Yasutoshi Nishimura, Japan's trade and industry minister, announced that export controls will be imposed on 23 types of chip-making equipment divided into six categories, requiring Japanese companies to seek export permissions for all regions. The controls, reportedly meant to ensure the equipment isn't diverted for military purposes, include exceptions for the 42 territories Tokyo recognizes as having adequate export measures including South Korea, Taiwan, and the U.S. Japan said these measures aren't meant to target any particular country, but they come as it has reportedly agreed in principle to join the U.S. in preventing China from getting critical equipment to make cutting-edge chips. In January, Japan and the Netherlands struck a three-way deal with the U.S. to cut off Beijing's ability to import gear to produce the most advanced types of semiconductors which could be used in sophisticated weaponry and machines. Once the world leader in chip production, Japan remains a major supplier of chip-making machines and semiconductors, despite seeing its global market share fall to about 10%. Tokyo Electron and Screen make about one-fifth of chip-making tools, while Shinetsu Chemical and Sumco produce most silicon wafers. Meanwhile, Yoshimasa Hayashi, Japan's foreign minister, is set to meet his Chinese counterpart in Beijing on Saturday, the first such visit since December 2019, as Tokyo calls for the quick release of a recently detained Japanese pharmaceutical company employee. All right, thanks for those facts, Adam. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. Japan is capitulating to U.S. pressure by formulating this discriminatory policy as Washington unilaterally weaponizes trade and technology issues against China in order to protect its own tech hegemony. But given the proven resilience of the Chinese tech sector, Japanese companies will suffer the most from Tokyo's decision to be a U.S. pawn. And that's followed up with an anti-China narrative brought to us by Unheard. Restricting Chinese access to advanced semiconductors is a matter of security to the democratic world. It's crucial to halt China's development of advanced AI systems deployable for military and intelligence uses, and limiting its access to leading-edge chip-making machinery from the U.S., Netherlands, and Japan will even the playing field in the mounting Cold War. We've got another nerd narrative as well. This one says there's an 11% chance that chips covered by the 2022 U.S. export controls 
will be exported to China before the year 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The U.S. House passes the GOP's energy agenda. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Roll Call, USA Today, and The Wall Street Journal. On Thursday, the Republican-majority U.S. House voted 225 to 204 to pass a wide range of energy proposals that would boost oil and gas production, increase the mining of critical minerals, and change the National Environmental Policy Act's project approval process. Republicans hope the legislation, known as the Lower Energy Costs Act, will reduce energy costs for Americans by increasing energy independence. While House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, touted the policy's ability to let the U.S. produce our own energy, the bill is unlikely to pass in the Senate, and the White House said Joe Biden would veto it. The bill would make it more difficult for a sitting president to limit cross-border energy projects, curtail the ability of states to object to projects that access its waters, and make it easier to sell liquefied natural gas abroad. In addition, the Interior Department would be required to sell rights to drill on federal lands at least four times per year, and the approval process for infrastructure projects would be sped up by setting deadlines for environmental reviews and limiting the amount of time projects could be challenged in court. Last year, Democrats tried to pass permitting reform legislation, a measure to speed up the approvals process for energy projects, but were blocked by Senate Republicans who felt the legislation was lacking. Scott, we're going to start off our narrative spins with a Republican narrative brought to us by Daily Wire. This bill is a part of Republicans' fight against Biden's senseless permitting red tape. The U.S. needs to be less reliant on other countries for energy, and this legislation could go a long way in lowering costs for Americans. Even some clean energy trade groups agree the permitting reform in this bill will benefit their industry. Contrast that with this Democratic narrative from Axios. This legislation is nothing but a free-for-all for big oil and the rest of the fossil fuel industry. If Republicans really want to provide Americans with better energy policies, they should negotiate with Democrats on a policy that benefits citizens while addressing climate change. And in our final story, the U.S. may include a slave-descendant query in the census. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Examiner, Wall Street Journal, and The Hill. The U.S. Census Bureau is reportedly considering whether to ask black Americans if they are descendants of slaves, as opposed to immigrants, as an update to race and ethnicity questions already asked by the survey. The idea of expanding racial categories comes as some believe society too often conflates the experiences of descendants of slaves with those of black immigrants, as well as amid a growing push to quantify who would be eligible to receive potential government reparations. The Biden administration has proposed combining questions about race and ethnicity in order to create distinct categories for people of North American or Middle Eastern origins. The potential new categories include American descendants of slavery, American freedmen, and foundational black Americans. The effort to combine race and ethnicity categories also includes scrapping the current questions of whether someone is Hispanic or Latino. The census currently asks for one's race before asking whether one is Hispanic or Latino. Certain cities are also proposing reparation programs for black Americans, citing historical and current wealth gaps between races. Duke University researchers found that slave descendants tend to lag behind immigrants in wealth and education. A California task force is calling for $360,000 in payments 
for its roughly 1.8 million black residents who have at least one slave ancestor. And San Francisco, California has proposed $5 million payments, the elimination of debt and tax burdens, annual incomes of at least $97,000 for the next 250 years, and homes in the city for $1 per family. Oh boy, we have a left narrative spin on this one. It comes from Newsweek. As white Americans finally come to grips with the grievances of their black neighbors, officials at every level of government are rightly considering ways to pay for the country's sinful past. While there is no agreed-upon solution, programs such as $300,000 cash payouts to student loan forgiveness and down payment grants are all possibilities. Though technically freed from slavery over a century ago, the free labor forced upon blacks back then has never actually been paid back. And our final right narrative comes from HotAir.com. Behind their rhetorical tactics of helping the less fortunate and making up for America's sinful past, the Democrats and left-wing activists are actually trying to worsen race relations for political gain. Nothing can come from telling white people whose ancestors, let alone themselves, never owned slaves that they have to pay black Americans who were never slaves exorbitant amounts of money in reparations. The argument for reparations is as incoherent as it is unethical, and those being gaslighted are waking up to this fact slowly but surely. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 1st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.